Hey, listener, Zach Harper here. Underdog Fantasy, the easiest place to play fantasy sports. Also, fastest growing fantasy app in the industry. Here's how it works. The Pick'em Game. Pick whether your favorite players will have a higher or lower stat total in this week's game for a chance to win big. How big, you ask? I'm so glad you asked that question, listener. You can win up to 100 times your money in a single night. Pick between two and five players. Build a pick'em entry. You can also do rivals picks. You can put like Tyrese Halliburton and Jalen Brunson against each other. And whoever has more points, more assists, more rebounds, whatever you want to do, that is your rivals pick. I would maybe go with Jalen Brunson in these playoffs. By the way, in the regular season, Jalen Brunson scoring tear, going higher on his point totals all the time. Joel Embiid, whenever he did actually play, higher on his scoring totals all the time. Victor Wembanyama for the next 15, 20 years. Here's a pro tip for you. Take higher on the blocks. That's right. So you're probably wondering, how do you sign up? Oh my God, listener, you are full of good questions today. Sign up with the promo code DING, that's D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick First time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. $250, man, that's a lot. Visit underdogfantasy.com or find them in the app store. And don't forget to register with our code DING, D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick and first time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. Must be 18 or older, 21 or older in Massachusetts, Arizona, 19 or older in Alabama and Nebraska, and present in a state where Underdog Fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.ncpgambling.org. Arizona, 1-800-NEXT-STEP. That's 1-800-639-8783. Or text next step. To five three three four two New York, call the twenty four seven Hope Line at one eight seven seven eight Hope and Y or text Hope and Y four six seven three six nine. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to another episode of Growing Up the Same. I'm your host, Trevon Edwards, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jason Madison. And today we have a special guest, Bobby Kim, a.k.a. Bobby Hundreds. What's going on, man? What's up, you guys? Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thanks, Bobby. Bobby Kim, a.k.a. Bobby Hundreds, is an illustrator, writer, photographer, designer, and co-creator of the brand The Hundreds. He is also a best-selling author, and his new book, This Is Not a T-Shirt, is out now and available for purchase wherever you get your reading materials nowadays. That's Bobby, right. This is, That's right. This is the one or the two. You ready? Yeah, sure. Fairfax or Soho? Oh, wow. Uh, I've got to say Fairfax, man. That's our backyard. That's our home. Got to. Yeah. Nike or Adidas? I'm Nike. Checks over stripes. <laughs> Kanye or Pharrell? Oh, wow. Uh, if you're asking me within this moment right now, I'm going to say Pharrell. I'm going to say yeah. Pharrell. I think Pharrell is the, I think in, in the end, the legacy will live longer with Pharrell. Both of, I, wow, that's a crazy question, actually. <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to say Pharrell. Okay. Jay-Z or Tupac? Oh, man, come on. <laughs> oh. 
Okay, so when we do these top MC, top rapper lists, uh-huh. Jay Z, Jay always sits at the top of mine, and right. that's like you know maybe a testament of how old I am or just the generation I come from. But he's number one, two, and three for me in the top ten or top fifty. Yeah, so I love Jay Z, but um, Tupac as an as a person and as a writer and as a poet and as a just a a leader. Yeah, I, it's beyond rap to me with Tupac. Right. So. so if it's just rap, we're talking Jay. Gotcha. Limp biscuit or corn? <laughs> I would say <laughs> I went to Corn's second show ever. Yeah. Uh, but I was also I also have this weird history with Limp Biscuit. I was on the set of End Together Now with uh, when it was Limp and it was Fred Durst and Method Man. I was one of the few people on set. I was there all night. I have photos really? from that night. Yeah. It's and I, I ended up this. on Oh God, that song was just a classic. Meth and Red at that time too were just on a whole nother. They're talk about top ten rappers like Meth and Red also sit up there for me. But I would say, okay, sorry, I get really long winded with questions like that. I would say Limp Biscuit. Okay, uh, Ford or Chevy? Ford. My first car was a Ford Flare Side F one fifty truck. Nice. Weed or alcohol? Um, alcohol. I really don't smoke much. I'm a, I'm, I drink. I don't drink that much, but when I do, I drink red wine. To Trey's point, I drink red wine and I drink scotch. Nice. I like a good scotch. Yeah. Dom or YG? <laughs> oh, I, I would have to say Dom. I love them both, but Dom is just family. Yeah. Uh, I Future or Wu-Tang? I'm old. I'm gonna say no. You know what? I'm gonna say Odd Future. Odd yeah. Future. Yeah. It's just Odd Future is just so meaningful to my life and my career. And uh, I was inspired by the Woo growing up. I love their music, but Woo was such an East Coast thing. Right. And if you're into them on the West Coast, if you're really passionately into them, you're really passionate about New York culture. And I love LA. I love California. Odd Future represented and depicted a lot of things that. I admired about our neighborhood and just about that generation of streetwear kids mm-hmm. and they continue to inspire. I think they're still very much alive and, and have, you know, a lot, a lot of the, the guys and the people associated with that group are continuing in their career. So I think we've only seen the beginning of that legacy. Yeah. Nigel or Nikel? Nikel. Yeah. Knock all day, all day. Yeah. Uh, again, another, person had the, the fortune of getting to see grow up skating on the block and um he's um i don't really have a, a connection with nigel i don't have an opinion on him either way but knock is is really like from the community yeah thriller or bad oh man uh bad uh, they're <laughs> both are bad yeah bad. Bad. yeah okay uh, Joe Rogan or Joe Budden? <laughs> That's such a good question. I listen to both. Yeah. I really do listen to both. And um, that's a split for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Fear of God or Off-White? <sighs> I love Virgil. I'm not as into Off-White as a brand, but I love Virgil as a, as a human and as a visionary as a creator, as a brand, I really love Fair God. In fact, sometimes I say if I didn't have my own brand and if I didn't dress the way I do, which I pretty much dress, I dress very simply the way I did when I was like a 14 year old, I'm still the same guy. But if I dress a certain different way and I, and I didn't have my own brand, I think I would be a Fair God guy. I just, I think it's so well done. Yeah. Uh, Lakers or Clippers? Lakers. Dodgers or Angels? Dodgers. Dodgers. Who I hope everyone who you've asked that question to who's from LA has said Dodgers. Please. Yeah, for sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, Dragon Ball Z or Pokemon? Dragon Ball Z. For yeah. Sure. Uh, Twitter or IG? Twitter. 
I'm a huge champion and advocate for Twitter. I, I, um, Instagram is a great gallery to just look at pictures, but Twitter is reading people's minds and also just an exchange of ideas. And it's a place where I get to go to be able to reach a deeper empathy with people and the world out there. And I don't really get, I don't get that from Instagram. Instagram's changed a lot this year to where now people are being more personal, political, more vocal about who they are. But before it was just pretty much advertising your life in this glossy marketing campaign. And now people are being a little bit more raw with it, but Twitter's built on this stage where it's most mainly about communicating who you are. And I, I, I like to live in there because I think I just understand the world a lot better by knowing how people think, whether or not I agree with them. Nice. Blogs or magazines? Um, I would say blogs now. Yeah. And I come, I come from a magazine background. I started out in print publishing and in magazine editorial and, um, was on the front line first generation of that blog blogger.com blogspot.com and our brand was essentially established on the blog for people who know and so i'm the blog generation i'm both but i think blogs are are king cash or crypto i would say cash i have crypto i think i'm still figuring it out cash is pretty straightforward i understand cash (laughs) yeah uh, LA or the Bay? I love LA. I think we live in the best city in the world in a number of ways. And there's a lot uh, to fault LA for, but um, LA is just wonderful. Although the Bay is just a universe of its own and has such a tight knit brotherhood and sisterhood, you know, up there. And I love them too. But um, LA is the best, man. Agree. Riff or round two? I, uh, I'm more of a, I would say riff. I'm not so much of like a round two dude. I love Sean. I just, I don't, it's not my thing. It's not my thing. The <laughs> uh, boondocks or Garfield? Well, for me, it's Garfield. Yeah. If you're from, if for those who are listening and familiar with us and our brand, I learned how to draw by reading Garfield comics when I was a kid and I got a healthy understanding of licensing and merchandise by buying a lot of Garfield blankets, bedroom clocks, stuffed animals growing up. And that if you pay attention to the brand has inspired a lot of what we do. And we've collaborated with Garfield a bunch of times. Back to the future or clockwork orange. It doesn't. <laughs> Back to the Future. Yeah. Back to the Future over everything for me. It's my favorite movie, and yeah. it's a parallel of my own life in so many ways. I've owned a DeLorean. My first house looked like Marty McFly's house. I have an obsession with time. You know, we are entering into our third collaboration with Back to the Future. Um, Bob Gale, the creator, is an old family friend of mine. He's. It's just. It's my life is. Michael J. Fox's life in that movie. Except for the, like, falling in love with your mom part, I hope. Rain bathe? Yeah. But you're, uh, you're so, uh, you're so thin. <laughs> right, that part. <laughs> that part, we haven't gotten there yet, but who yeah. knows? Maybe if my mom looked like Leah Thompson, how she did in 1985, that'd be a different story. Right. <laughs> That part never seemed that odd to me when I was a kid. And then the older I get, I'm like, what the hell is going on here? This is not okay. Not at all. Weird Oedipus complex going on here. (laughs) Um, Korean barbecue or sushi? Korean barbecue. I was just talking with the guys outside about Park's Barbecue, which is our favorite Korean barbecue in L.A. And they have outdoor seating and I'm like, I haven't eaten at a restaurant yet in the pandemic. And I would, that would be my cheat. Uh, I get a hall pass for that one. Uh, Mediterranean food or Caribbean food? Mediterranean or Caribbean food. Oh God. That's also really hard. I don't know. I would say that's a split. That's a split. Um, Tacos or burgers. 
tacos. Tacos. We are from LA and we miss our Mexican food, our, our style of what Mexican food is here in LA. When I travel, the only thing I really miss is Mexican food um, as far as foods goes. It's the first thing I want when I get off the plane. Um, free food for life or free clothes for life? Free food for life. Yeah. I, I make my clothes. I'll be good with the clothes. But also, I think I I value clothing, but I really appreciate food. I feel like I work in order to be able to pay for good food. If I spend money on anything, it's food. Right. Me too. Uh, photography or design? Oh, wow. So I have a background with both. I... It's hard to choose one over the other. I, I'd say maybe at this point in my life, it's more design. In fact, it's probably more, more writing than even design. Photography yeah. is always going to be a first love for me. But I think the medium and um, its purpose has changed a lot over the last 10 years with the advent of smartphone cameras and everyone being a photographer and Instagram filters. And so the meaning has kind of changed for me with photography and I'm not as enthused about it as I was when I was 12 years old, but, um, who knows, maybe it'll come back around. Love or trust. Oh, wow. Trust, trust, mm -hmm. trust and loyalty are paramount in my life. And, um, I, it means a lot. It, it has to do with like a, a sense of respect and a real hatred of betrayal. <laughs> and um, I'm all about trust and, and uh, loyalty. Um, would you rather have a hater that admires you or a friend that ignores you? A hater that admires me, 100%. <laughs> I feel like the hater who admires me is the most truthful one of the pair. Mm -hmm. And the most honest, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Marvel or DC? Oh, God. Um, man. I'd say Marvel. We do a lot of work with DC, so I'm trying to be political and say right. it's I'm, more DC. I'm trying to jam you up. <laughs> it, it, it does jam me up, though, because I love Marvel, but in terms of work, Marvel complicated because Disney and then it's just a messy situation. Yep. But DC is, I always root for the underdog and DC is the underdog. But then also, I love like Dark Horse Comics and Image and a lot of the other outlier comic book companies as well. Yeah. Uh, the Last Jedi or The Rise of Skywalker? I really like The Rise of Skywalker. And did Bobby. I know I did, and I I I like the Last Jedi too, but I just I really like the I I don't know what's wrong with me. Yeah, that a, that's such I don't a... right. Interview is <laughs> over. Yeah, and I I uh, please I invite the judgment. Yeah, I don't I don't know why that movie sits with me so well. I think I wanted it to be really good, and I came out of it going like, dude, that was good. Was it like phenomenal? No. You know, whatever. I think, I think, to be perfectly honest, my expectations for Star Wars movies have diminished drastically over time yeah. to the point where I got, you know, now I'm at an age and an experience level where I just admire it and enjoy it for what it is. And I was yeah. like, oh, there's some cool fight scenes and that's a pretty shot and I feel good and I'm not so analytical with it anymore. But maybe that's why. Okay. I mean, I'll, I'll have to accept your answer, but I just want to say for the record that that is a terrible film. It's a terrible... Okay, it's fair. It's totally <laughs> fair. Yeah. I'm also... How do you feel about Solo? Uh, I didn't hate it. Okay, I, I like Solo too. So <laughs> that was another one that people were like, what are you talking about? I thought Rogue One was one of the best Star Wars of the well, last Rogue 10 Rogue One years. is one of the best Star Wars films, period. Okay, okay. Yeah. All right, so... <laughs> Man, I just lost the plot at some point with yeah. the last Skywalker, right? Skywalker, right? Skywalker. I don't know. I got it wrong, but maybe okay. I got to watch it again. I only watched it once. Yeah, the set pieces were dope, but the, I mean, it's just so many silly things. We could talk about that movie for a long time. <laughs> I'm not gonna go in. All right. So my last one is: 
Would you rather be a successful artist for a few years and then go into obscurity, or would you rather be recognized as one of the greatest artists of all time after you die? Basically, the question is, would you rather be Vanilla Ice or Vincent Van Gogh? <laughs> I would... I think I would rather be, um, to be honest, I mean, to be perfectly frank, which is what this is about, I don't really care either way. Yeah. I don't think, uh, and and I have probably bad self-esteem and poor self-image, and so I just don't think I'm going to get respect in this lifetime or the next. Right. If anything, yeah, maybe I would say Van Gogh. I think Van Gogh, you know, having a legacy like that, and if that would mean something to my children and to my grandchildren, then that's really great but as for me personally i don't really care for any of it because it doesn't really matter you know to me none of that none of it really matters yeah well that was a one of the two thanks those are good ones you you got me you got me a few times there (laughs) yeah That, that could be its own podcast segment i was sitting here like one way I was like, well, damn, Jason, you're taking a long time. And then secondly, I was thoroughly enjoying it as a fan of both of you guys. <laughs> so um, thank you, Jason, for those great those great questions. All right. So we're going to jump into the nitty gritty of things. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about uh, your home life. Yeah. So yeah. Um, how was that? Yeah, I grew up in... I'm a second-generation Korean-American immigrant. My parents immigrated here in the 70s, and um, I'm one of three brothers. I'm the middle son and have everything that a middle child complex comes with, the Jan Brady syndrome, they used to call it in the 80s, because she was always obsessed with what her older sister got, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. So that was me. Well, all I hear all day long at school is how great Marsha is at this or how wonderful Marsha did that. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. There were entire books written about this, and I was, um, I felt like the peanut butter and jelly in the sandwich, or there was all these different metaphors for what it was like to be a middle child. So number one, I felt very much different, isolated, a black sheep of my own family. And then within the larger community of where I grew up in Riverside, California, which is an hour east of LA and being one of the few Asian American kids within the community and at school, also feeling very much marginalized on the outside. And then within an even greater context of what American culture looked like at the time when America was predominantly white, predominantly Protestant Christian, predominantly making films and television shows and featuring music artists that looked a very specific way that I wasn't and didn't find myself represented or depicted on the screen or on the magazines anywhere. So definitely felt like an outcast within the country I lived in, within the immediate neighborhood I grew up in, and then even within my own home. So I was hardwired from the beginning to feel very much like I didn't quite belong and that I needed to prove my worth and to establish what my identity was. And so I was drawn to a lot of fringe interests, which at that time, it wasn't mainstream to be into skateboarding, wasn't that mainstream to be into punk music, into backpack rap, into a lot of these different subcultures. But I found myself very comfortable within those realms because everyone else was a square peg like me. Um, But I just bringing it back within the context of my home life just never felt like I truly belonged and a lot of that came to a head with my parents and my father especially and um, there were also crazy generation gap generational gaps there uh, communication barriers there between my dad and I because he didn't speak English very well I didn't speak his language you know our language of Korean and so many cultural gaps, you know, when you're an immigrant to this country and you come from Korea, which it's backwards in so many ways. And then you're raising your children here and they're growing up speaking back to their parents and that's normalized. And 
um, there's drug paraphernalia and just bad kids hanging around all the time. Like that's normal. Yeah. I think my parents were kind of thrown for one and, uh, we had a really tense relationship growing up. What was your, um, favorite childhood memory? My favorite childhood memory. Um, wow. Nobody's really asked me that before as strange as that sounds. I'm going to start asking everybody that question. I, I, um, I used to escape into my art. I was never allowed to really indulge in my art because my parents were afraid of me entering any creative field for a career. They wanted me, typical dragon parents, Asian parents, of they wanted me to be a doctor or have like a secure and steady career. They didn't immigrate to their to this country so their child could be a starving artist. Uh, but that's where my heart was. I love to draw. I love to write. I love to take photos as we talked about earlier. And some of my favorite memories were after my parents would go to bed uh, I would stay up, I'd get back up out of my bed and um, turn the, the light on at my desk, open the window. I, I grew up in Riverside again, which gets really warm in the summers. And so summer nights, me with just a pad of paper and some pencils and just drawing for hours on end, you know, with the radio, turned really low so no one could hear in the house and me getting for just a moment, you know, this window of time every night getting to really feel free. And it's interesting because just parallel to my career, when people talk about what milestone moments there were or when I achieved real success, I feel the same way I do today as I did in day one of starting the company because in day one, I, allowed myself the freedom and the liberty to make a living off of art. And it's something I had dreamt of. It was an impossibility when I was a kid. And then now I get to do it every day. I won the lottery. It's like I'm the luckiest man in the world that every day I get to draw pictures for a living. I get to think and create and come up with ideas for a living. So I live the most successful and rewarding life, not financially, monetarily. It's because I get to pursue my passion every day. And it was as simple as sitting next to a window and drawing pictures every night. So art was your escape kind of, and just being creative. Uh, did you have any childhood trauma? I grew up with a lot of trauma. I grew up in, um, um, physically abusive home, which I really have not addressed much anywhere just because, you know, my family's very private and I still have a relationship with my parents after all these years that took a lot of work, a lot of therapy, but I did grow up in, um, an abusive home and I think, um, it shaped me in so many ways, you know, it, it, it's, definitely been detrimental, harmful to how I carry on my existing relationships in my life. I've been married for a long time now, and I have two beautiful children, but even within that familial context, I can see how I'm broken in so many ways. And then that carries over into my daily friendships and then just my work alliances and work relationships and how I have, as we addressed earlier, just deep-seated issues with trust and loyalty. I have much difficulty accessing my emotions or being vulnerable as a man uh, just because of, you know, it's funny, just this morning we were in the hallway and um, we have these morning Zooms as a staff. And this morning I'm feeling especially heavy because considering the week and what's transpired um, in Wisconsin and with the resulting protests and NBA and everything. And uh, I was addressing our staff and just asking everyone, like, how are you doing? How are you doing? Like, let's talk about this because it's more important than work at the end of the day. And afterwards, one of the girls who works here came up to me. She was just like, you know, you really just need to cry. And I was like, I don't know how to cry. I haven't cried in maybe my second son was born eight years ago. So eight years before that, it was when his brother was born. So that was 11 years ago. Other than that, in the last 20 years, I think that those were the only two times I've cried. 
And it's not for a lack of wanting to cry. Like I, I envy when people cry, like another guy walked up, he's just like, Oh, I wish I was like you. I cry when I watch a commercial. And I was just like, that's beautiful. I wish I could be, I had that catharsis. I can't do it. And it's a real handicap in my life. The emotions come out all different ways, but I can't cry. And that is a direct result. I can directly trace that back to when I was growing up and my dad saying, you know, I'm in pain. And my dad saying, you can't cry, be a man, like stop crying, stop crying. And so I turn, I taught myself to stop crying. Yeah. Not to cut you off, but like the things you were saying were resonating with me so much with just like having a dad, like, you know, cuss you out or just tell you not to cry. Oh, you a bitch or whatever, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. Going through that, like, you know, that's that's a trauma that they don't realize that they're inflicting on you because they're in another generation and that's how they were raised. And, you know, like mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot of men, a lot of, you know, the minority men, black men, Asian men deal with very strong yeah. disciplinarian is what they call it. But that's abusive, you know, uh, father. Yeah. And and we have to carry that as a new generation of men who are going to therapy and learning how to deal with our feelings and all of this. And like. Like you said, yeah. we're in so many ways that it's hard to even express that to people to be like, look, I'm still trying to get over and understand all of the trauma that I am bringing to my daily life, you know? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Everything you said, I, I 100% agree. I think they're generous. Like, look, my dad's generation, they grew up in a war. You know, he, he lost his mom really early. They grew up in third world country, essentially South Korea at that time. Um, life wasn't promised to them every day, kind of like how it's starting to look like it's going to be here where they just grew up with so much hardship and stress and trauma. And so for me to, you know, them to immigrate to this country, give me everything, say you're crying when you have Saturday morning cartoons and you get to eat cereal every day and you're just living your best life. And what do you, you know, be a man, you got to be strong. The world is tough. The world is hard. Like you can't let it get to you. And, um, it's just, um, it is. It's it was generational. It's how they were taught and instilled, but it just it trapped them. You know, I don't think my dad and his uh, parents and his grandparents were able to appreciate the entirety of the world because they wouldn't allow their emotions and their feelings to go there. You know, and so with my children, I'm doing everything I can to, to my ability to help them express a lot of those feelings, those whether it's anger, you know, when my son gets, one of my sons has a temper like I do. And when he lets his rage just go, I might feel it. Like, just really like feel, be conscious of what you're doing, you know, like, and when you're sad and you're crying, I'm like, it's okay. I want you to feel that. I want you to feel all corners of life. You know, I've lived this very restricted path throughout my life where I'm like, this is the only way I can't veer this direction. I'm like, I want you to swerve all over the road. I want to feel it all, the highs and the lows. And like, really, that's life. You know, life is not this disciplined, extremely measured, composed way of living all the time. It's just like, I'm like, dude, you know, one of my sons said like a curse word the other day. Oh, daddy, I shouldn't say a bad word. If you feel that way, you can say that word. You know, sometimes it's appropriate to use language like that if that's really how you need to communicate how you're feeling. And um, I love it, to be honest, like, even the, some of the guys that I get to work with, they're a different gen. I'm old, you know, I'm 40. Some of them are in their 20s and they have access to their emotions in a way where it's just making for, it's just making for better art and just better language across the board, you know? So I think we're coming to a much better place, like as a civilization, you know, we're not a generation of not raising another generation of boys who are just like, got to be tough and machismo and, you know, be a certain type of way, because honestly, that was weakness. It was just weakness and fear and insecurity. And when you're crying and you're honest and transparent with your emotions, like that's so brave, like that's so strong, like you're willing to get better and better and admitting that you're wrong, you're admitting that you're, you're worried and you're scared, like that's powerful, you know? First of all, Bobby, I want to say thank you for being vulnerable with us. Um, also, tough love is overrated. Um, as you guys mentioned, as far as you guys having both parents in your lives, I didn't have neither. You know what I mean? My, my dad was murdered, 
uh, when I was nine. My mom was in and out of prison and on drugs. So um, I faced a lot of trauma early on, you know what I mean? And those mm-hmm. things right there, um, just searching and trying to figure out, you know, am I doing everything right and trying to grow up on my own? I mean, I had a grandmother who was actually um, a housekeeper for Aaron Spelling. And during that time, I was a latchkey kid. So we're of age of latchkeys where, you know, you wear a key around your neck and you come home. And I was walking home at six, seven years old and just eating TV dinners. But growing up all that, plus growing up in Compton and dealing with the streets and all that other stuff. Like my dad was a gang member. My mom was a gang member. My cousins. So seeing that and obviously finally falling in love with a sport that saved my life. I still had to deal with the ills of the world. So um, dealing with the loss of friends, like most of my childhood friends are dead. Um, and my cousins and relatives are dead. So I, mm-hmm. in a different standpoint of the the kind of relatable wise, as far as you said, you couldn't, you haven't cried and you would like, I envy, I tell people that as well. Like I envy you being able to let your tear ducts flow, you know? I have been desensitized since I was 12 years old, whether it was seeing somebody get murdered in front of me, whether it was just anything. I am the worst person to make you feel at ease, you know, and obviously um, I've been told I'm cold, but that's just how how I was brought up. So now I am channeling, you know, like like you mentioned, therapy, therapy helps, but also overall wellness I think is very important yeah. in this world and it sometimes gets overshadowed especially with all this trauma that you're either given or you're forced upon you know what I mean like you don't have to relate to it firsthand but secondhand you're still inheriting that and I think for me the first time to go to therapy at 34 years old at the time was so instrumental to how I feel now like like I applaud you for even raising children in with that trauma and then kind of trying to like figure it out yeah. because that was my fear. It was like I pushed away a lot of good women because I just was like, I've never felt love before. I don't really yeah. know how to do all that. And am I going to do my kids like this? You know what I mean? So like yeah. that was yeah. always one of those things for me. And I, I like I said, it, like even Jason said, it was relatable. I feel our listeners are going to be able to relate to this as well. Um, you know, this is a very important segment, and I thank you again for sharing. Um, yeah. So, Trey, I gotta say, when and if you ever have children, you're gonna be an amazing dad. So I've heard that. I was a elementary school teacher for about six years. Um, I am a student of life, and I try to improve daily. Whether it's yeah, you know, anything, just learning. I don't think I know anything. I'm always on some like. I can be sitting there in front of a chipmunk and say, teach me something. You know what I mean? So it it doesn't matter. But thank you. I appreciate both you guys for the compliment. And, you know, Lord willing, if I do have children, you know, I hope that I'm the best at it. You know, so enough of the deep stuff. We're going to go into some fun (laughs) stuff. Um, I had some cool people ask some funny questions, but I don't know if they're also funny to you. One is, is streetwear dead? That's that's the topic, huh? It's been circulating for the last year, but for us, it's we've been hearing this since the beginning. You know, we started in 2003, and back then they said streetwear's dead. You know, this oh, streetwear's on the internet now. I remember that conversation. Oh, streetwear's on the blogs now. There's a blog. Uh, blogosphere of streetwear that's not where it belongs it's already dead okay so that was round one then like in around the 2009 to 2011 era like post-recession there was another wave of streetwear is really dead this time you know because of the economy but there was a glut of streetwear brands that had started up in the 2000s and kind of fizzled out a lot of those kids ended up like literally moving back home and then streetwear was dead again around 2015. You have brands like Hood by Air and a lot of this crossover runway type of looking thing happening where um, the traditional streetwear brands like ours, like the hundreds, were kind of being left behind. Okay, the focus now is on making 
runway and we're going to Paris Fashion Week. And that's kind of where it's been at for the last five years. And then high fashion took over. And every year that high fashion has taken over, it, it seems like it's come up even more ve vehemently. Streetwear is dead. Now it's just about high fashion. So my point being that streetwear has died over and over and over again. And the way I say it, the way I put it is that it dies every night, but then it's reborn in the morning. It's reborn. It's renewed. It's a different set of eyes on it. It's a different generation of designers who are looking at it. But that's if you just look at the surface aesthetic of what streetwear is, the actual, just the fashion, like the literal fashion segment of it. But streetwear is an attitude, right? It is an entrepreneurial mindset. It's an artistic approach. It's the it's the uncomfortable crack between art and commerce. That's streetwear. Streetwear is just streetwear is an attitude, and that attitude is um, it's always existed. It's existed throughout gener different teen subcultures over generations. They called it different things, and uh, now they just call it streetwear. I don't know what they're going to call it, you know, next year, or five years from now, but. It's not dead by any means. By saying it's dead, it's but it's saying that individuality is dead. Um, ambitious young kids who think that they're invincible and can take on the world is dead. Like none, none of those things are dead. You know, yeah. streetwear is just the merchandise associated with that way of life. So streetwear is basically cats. Cool. <laughs> cats. Cats. There you go. That's what the result is. Yeah. Uh, another question is, and you mentioned high fashion and Paris Fashion Week and et cetera. How do you feel about the globalization of American streetwear as a result? Um, well, hey, it's good for me business-wise. I think it's, I, it's hard to say what is American streetwear because American streetwear that we understand it today was inspired and influenced so much by what Japan was doing in the 90s and early 2000s, by what London was doing in like the 80s. Um, you know, so it, it, it's, it, that's the one of the best parts about streetwear. It's a confluence of all these cultures. It's an intersection of different points of view from all over the world and different generations. So um, I think American streetwear is in itself that's it's hard to define what that is i i don't even think i mean we're based here but i wouldn't say we're even so much an american brand we're just a global brand okay uh my last question and then jason has two for you um what do you think made the scene gravitate towards fairfax so in the early to mid 2000s there wasn't a lot of emphasis in streetwear culture on Los Angeles. We had Undefeated and Union on La Brea and the Stussy flagship. But even then, streetwear wasn't even a term that was associated with this tribe of community, culture, and commodity, whatever it is. Um, the focus was really more on Harajuku in Japan, what Nigo was doing with the Bathing A, Bounty Hunter, and also a lot of Europe. Um, but LA wasn't really a hub for streetwear, not even in the way that New York was. In the States, you really looked at New York for streetwear. At that time, uh, brands like A-Life, Supreme, Sir, J-Money. And so when we were starting up, um, we, we chose, we landed on Fairfax because there wasn't anybody there. Supreme had actually just opened their first LA store there, but there was no, nothing else on the block. And we just set up camp because the building we were in had burned down the year before and they were almost giving away spaces. And so we took over the space. We ended up taking over the entire corner. And I started blogging from there. And this was seven years before social media really started. This was long before most anybody was blogging, let alone blogging within the framework of our street culture. And so I was broadcasting, broadcasting live, you know, once, twice, three times a day, updating our website with photos that I would take from the street, go home, go back into the office, process them, upload them. This is Trey and this is Jason. They have a podcast link here, follow them. And if you're watching from anywhere around the world in this tight-knit community of what streetwear was, 
you were seeing that there was an actual network of people that were happening. That, that was happening everywhere in every town and city, but I was just curating it and storytelling it in a way that was really easy to digest. And so when I would travel, I would go to Paris and then go to Starco and, you know, Fresh Gator would be sitting behind the computer reading my blog. I'm like, oh my God, you're reading it in Paris. And I'll go to New York and the guys in, you know, the search shop were reading it behind it. And so everyone, there was only my blog, Hypebeast started a little bit after, um, but not many places to go to look for that. Now you can look to literally everyone you follow on Instagram to be, you know, telling you what's on the front lines of streetwear. But at the time it was like really just my voice and a few others that were blogging. And so, um, I'm not saying it's because of my blog, but what the blog did was it showcased what the community was and the community that circulated around that block had come from all over. They were looking for a home. They needed somewhere to go and it just stacked on top of each other. We started throwing block parties. And to me, that was really the genesis of what Fairfax is today, because at those block parties, there were no more walls and divisions between brands and not just even within LA brand, San Francisco, New York, they all flew out, party together. Everyone met there. You know, Tyler's sitting on our curb, you know, next to whatever mega from Huff and Black Scale. And then all of a sudden, streetwear became a community. You know, like those were the days. Like it wasn't about my brand and I'm selling this. It had nothing to do with that. It's just like, yo, my name is Bobby. You know, I'm, this is what I'm about. Yo, my name is Jamie. This is what I'm about. Cool. Oh, you have a brand. Let's do something together. And it was so innocent and so fundamentally about the creative aspect of it and a lot of the ego associated, the bravado of it all. But it was just predominantly dudes. It was just a bunch of guys running around with our projects saying, what do you think of mine? What do you think? I like yours. Let's hang out. And not about we're going to make a ton of money, not about this is my career. And it just came from a really humble and authentic origins. Yeah. The authenticity of those block parties, Robbie, like, man, I wish that, you know, once this was all over, we could go and have another block party. It, it's just one of those things like you can't really recapture that energy. You know, we just got to be grateful yeah. that we were a part of that when it happened. Um, but yeah, I just definitely wanted to say, like, shout outs to you guys for even doing that. And, you know, that was really important and instrumental in everything that eventually happened. I got on my um, my 100 t-shirt. from. That's I a really old shirt, Jason. I got to get you some new gear. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, this is my favorite t-shirt, bro. I, so I'm just letting you know, like, I, yeah. wore this, I wore this in the Watermelon Sunday video in 2008. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> I've, I've kept this t-shirt for 12 years. This is like, you know what I'm saying? This is my only keepsake from just that era. And I wear it just as like my lucky shirt. You feel me? So I was like, I got to wear it today for, for Bobby for sure. He'll notice it. <laughs> um, but that really makes me feel good, man. Thank you. Yeah. It's so, tight. It's tight. Yeah. So one of my last questions for you, as far as the hundreds, I've heard that you guys may have sold a piece of the company a few years ago and also possibly bought in the other brands. This is just a rumor. I don't know the truth of it, but if if and you know if indeed that you have, what's the science of when to buy and when to sell pieces of a brand as somebody's mm. business? So no, um, the first part, no, we've never sold off a piece of the company. We've courted uh, many different buyers or investors who are looking into the company to buy, and I talk about that at length in the book that we that you mentioned earlier. One of them was. Um, uh, Tommy Hilfiger, you know, another was Seth from Echo. You know, we had a lot of different people that were interested over the years and it never worked out either for our reasons or for theirs. And so we haven't, that part, we haven't made the transition. I can't speak too much of what that's like, but as far as us bringing on other brands, um, investing in other brands, partnering with other brands, yes, this is true. I'm not at liberty to say which brands those are, but I would say that some of them are at, in some ways bigger than the hundreds even at this point. But um, what we realized over the years of doing this, again, we've been doing this 17 years, is that although we're very much proud and aware of the fact that we created the hundreds, what we're really, really proud of is the machine that we developed. And we have a 
fully functioning production, uh, design, marketing, bookkeeping, finances, organizational, web backend, like an entire machine, a monster that's running here every day that we um, have somehow mastered and figured out the ins and, out as, uh, ins and outs of for 17 years. That was happening at the same time that we realized there was a real need in the marketplace for brands to basically develop quick infrastructure. So the easiest way to explain this is that these days, if you're starting off a streetwear company or any company, really, like if you're starting a, a wine brand, like this is Gary V's wine company, or you're starting a face mask company or whatever it is, it's actually really easy to build the customer base, the clientele. That used to be the hard part. That would come later. But now you can do it overnight with the ease, with the tools of social marketing. You have targeted ads, you have email lists, you know, you can quickly accrue a customer base. That's not a problem. You just need a celebrity or a rapper to pose next to your stuff. You get all their following. They're down to buy from you. You have a DTC Shopify website. It's all set up. You can literally make $100,000 overnight. That's not the hard part. The hard part is fulfilling the $100,000 orders, right? Like it's actually getting that product made and sent to the door. Like that's the work that you cannot buy. There is no social media shortcut to it. And so a lot of companies, brands, designers, personalities, they blow up overnight with a product and everyone's like, oh, that's a cool new thing. But they are not really around in six months because the weight of the orders, the weight of the audience actually crushes them. And so what we did, what we do, and our agency is called Second Sons. What we do is we provide the machine. So you have the audience and you're the face and you're popular. You have 100,000 Instagram followers. No problem. We will actually develop and run your books and create your marketing campaigns and do all this stuff. That's the real work. We just do it in reverse now. It used to be you do the work, then you get the customers. Now you start off with the customers and then you do the work. We do all the hard work for you. So that's really how those partnerships have come about. No. So, um, the hundreds have had a lot of cartoon collaborations, most, yep. namely, most namely Disney. What was your connection to animation and the Walt Disney brand growing up? Yeah, I, um, my, my, I've been drawing cartoons since as, as early as I can remember in my life. And I'm also born of a generation of Saturday morning cartoons, Garfield Comics, Calvin and Hobbes, Comics, cartoons were such a daily part of our existence. You know, the just Americana at that time was intertwined with cartoons. And Disney, you know, this was before computer graphics, computer animated CGI. And so it, there was a real magic and artistry behind pen to paper cartoon making. And so I grew up wanting to be a cartoonist. I thought I was going to do that um, when I grew up. I didn't think I was going to go into fashion or anything. I just wanted to draw cartoons. All the mediums that uh, would have allowed that have pretty much disappeared over the years. Comic strips and newspapers gone because newspapers are gone. Um, animation is largely done through the age through the aid of digital now, and so there's not so much of a demand and need for someone who does like pen to paper like. Um, but streetwear, you know, graphic t-shirts, especially we need that still. And so it's now, it's funny. I ended up still becoming a cartoonist just in a different way. Like in a way I would have never imagined when I was eight years old or six years old, but right. I still get to draw cartoons every day. And then Disney, look, Disney, um, Disney is problematic in a lot of ways, like Walt Disney himself, but his story is really inspirational and kind of a lighthouse for how I would love to see my life play out. He created commercial merchandise for you to take his um, experience home. He created an actual experience in itself in terms of building Disneyland parks. And so you can enter physically enter the world. And then you can also be entertained through Disney entertainment. So watching it on screen, TVs and movies. And so he hit like the three that a lot of narcissist, egomaniac, creative people like myself aspire to have one day it's like right. it's not just enough that you come within my world or that you watch it on the screen i want you to also buy it and go home with it as well and it's like i want to hit you every which way with my art all right so i got the last question and it is what advice would you give 18 year old bobby oh man 18 year old bobby 
was very angry and confused, very alone, um, very brash, excited about the future, but also had no idea where I fit in or what, or what he would be doing for the rest of his life. And I talk to a lot of 18 year old Bobbies every day. Right. I stay really connected with my community and I sell predominantly to 18 year old Bobbies, 18 year old kids, boys and girls who are feeling lost and have not figure out their path in life. And they're worried because they're looking at the rest of their life saying, where do I fit into this picture? And the thing is that I, that I didn't know then that I couldn't have known is how important and how integral the internet would become to business in the marketplace. How the advent of social media would allow a communicative brand to exist. You know, like everything I was into when I was 18 years old, I was into skateboarding, but I wasn't a good skater. I was into music. I don't know how to play an instrument. Everything that I was obsessed with there really was no inroads for me to make a career and a livelihood out of that. And so I just thought it was hopeless. I thought I'd have to end up in some dead end job, hate my job for the rest of my life. And, you know, maybe just do my fun stuff in the, as a pastime after work hours, you know, that's why I went to law school. Cause I was like, I guess I'll just be a lawyer. Cause there's no job. There's no place for me. I don't see anyone in the clothing industry who even looks like me. Right. Which is, um, a lot of brown and black people have that feeling when they look at a lot of culture. They're like, I want to be a movie producer, but I don't see myself in those pictures. Like, I want to be this, but I don't see myself. So it just wasn't even an option for me. I wish I could go back and tell myself that it would have all, it's all going to work out. Everything that you love and are passionate about every day, you're going to figure out a way to do it. The internet is going to facilitate a lot of that. The climate's going to change. The social context is going to change. There are going to be more people who look like you in the future in this country than not. And there's going to be a real need for you to be a representative of people who look like you and to lead in that space. And so that would have been really helpful for me. I think I, it's better that I didn't know any of that stuff because I probably would have gotten lazy and comfortable, but um, it's just like, look, the, moral at the end of the story, the lesson of it all is that you have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, right now we're living in really dark and depressing times where it seems really hopeless. But if time has told us, has taught us anything, it's that our expectations and ideas of what the future is are continually broken over and over again, for better and for worse, right? Nobody saw Trump being coming president and nobody really anticipated there being a pandemic this year, just the way that we never expected a black president alone, a black president for eight years, like tomorrow, another pandemic can hit a meteor can hit, you know, but then, or else tomorrow, like Jesus Christ might descend from the heavens. And, you know, like there's like a massive 15.0 earthquake, like you never know. And so don't count yourself out as, much as the experts tell you, oh, it's impossible. Like how many people I've told me throughout my life, it's not going to work from my parents to my teachers to the experts, to the people within the clothing industry saying, it's not going to work for you. This isn't good enough. Stores literally, literally telling us over the phone, we haven't heard of you. Do you know how many other clothing companies are? What makes yours special? Yours isn't special. They were all experts. They all knew more than I did. They had more experience and they really were informed better than I was. And so if I would listened to them, because I believe that they were smarter and they knew the future, they were smarter than me at the time, but did they know the future? No, they were as ignorant about the future as I was on that. In that sense, we're all on the same level. I know just as much about what happens in the future as Dr. Fauci does, as President Trump does, as Obama does, like no one knows, right? So you can't say just because all the experts today are telling you or history has taught you this, that it can't happen tomorrow. Like every, all the rules will change again tomorrow. So I, that's something that I wish I had told myself and I knew at 18 and I try to tell the 18 year olds today because they're looking at a hopeless job market. They're like, the world's going to end climate change, you know, another four years of Trump. Like, what do we do? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you have no idea what's going to happen. 
follow your heart, listen to what your passions are, make it work for yourself and the world will form around that. You know, like don't hinge your future and your vision on what everyone has told you the world will be tomorrow. Man, that's sound advice, man. Thank you so much, Bobby, Great. for joining us today, man. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you guys. That was awesome. <laughs>